for your very kind words. It's particularly appreciated when it comes from a very close friend, as you said, for 40 years, and therefore maybe should be discounted because it comes uh, from a very uh, close friend. I also want to express my appreciation. Uh, where's Charles sitting? Ah. Charles Small, uh, for his initiative in setting up uh, his gap, which I'm proud to be associated with, and of course to both uh, the Miller Center and his gap for co-sponsoring this evening. I must say that, I, you know, as I look around, I told Chaim that I actually see some faces from the last time uh, that, that I was here. Um, or that's just maybe that I don't remember well, but I do uh, think I see some faces and it gives me a certain sense of, <coughs> you know, familiarity. Um, and also, when you mentioned Chaim about the website, I think I have to make full disclosure, and that is, uh, I don't know what's on my website, and the reason being, because I happen to be technically illiterate, I'm one of the few who still uh, has not yet entered the uh, computer age, and so I, I don't really know how the internet works, uh, videos and the like, which reminds me of a true story that my son, who's now 27, came to me when he was not yet three years of age, and somehow he had a prescient sense that I didn't know how these things work. And he looked up at me with that rather uh, whimsical smile that he had, a mischievous smile, I would say. And he said to me, Daddy, can you help me fix the video? And I said, well, Yoni, you know, I don't know how to fix the video. And he looked at me with that grin of his head. I know, Daddy. All I'm asking to do is to pick me up because I can't reach it. <laughs> Whereupon, later that day, uh, my daughter came to me and said, Daddy, you know it? Yoni told me, and I said, no, he said, Gila, Daddy may be a nice man, but he's not very smart. Not very smart. So that's the repast to the very uh, introduction that I got. And while I'm on it, I won't tell any more stories, but you spawned another one from my son with the 92% uh, issue. Uh, that was the first election uh, in which I ran. It's gone down since with each election. But in that first one, and I was... Uh, nominated, as it happened then by acclamation, I won't go into that, but at the nomination meeting, my son, as I said, now 26, then 12, was very disturbed that I was running for parliament. We had a very, very close relationship, and he anticipated that the relationship would be disturbed uh, by my being away from home and the like. So he's walking around very forlorn and visibly upset, and a journalist sees him and says to him, what do you think of uh, your father running for parliament? And he answered as follows, the context is the late 90s, which becomes relevant, you'll see more. He answers as follows, which was front page in the newspaper the next day. He said, I think my dad's crazy. He's a law professor, he's a human rights lawyer, that I can understand. What does he want to go to parliament for? Nothing ever happens there, they don't do anything. If anything, some of them become corrupt, and there's a Monica Lewinsky waiting for him around the corner. <laughs> later, as I was telling this story, but I, I, at the risk of sounding self-serving, but, but uh, Chaim's already said it, I did get elected with 92% of the vote, so this journalist calls up my son. He said, 
what do you think of your dad now? He got 92% of the vote. And my son answered as follows, again, front page in the newspaper. The next day he said, Donald Duck writing in his writing for the liberals would have got 92% of the vote. If my dad lost, that would have been a story. So, uh, you see that I have a, a humbling uh, presence and, uh, in my midst. And that's why when I remarked about, I thought I saw some familiar faces. If you noticed me hesitant for a moment, it's because my the same son feels that, that I'm less and less recognizing people uh, whom I should know. And then he made his last very compelling uh, repast to me when he said, Dad, if you get Alzheimer's, we'll never know. There'll be no difference. <laughs> okay, now please. <laughs> Next time you might want to invite him. <laughs> I'm pleased to really be here to participate in what I take to be the common cause which brings us together. And that is the struggle against hate, against anti-Semitism, against atrocity, against injustice, and always, always against indifference. As it happens, I recently participated in the largest ever inter-parliamentary delegation that went to Auschwitz, to death camp Auschwitz, on the occasion of International Holocaust Remembrance Day on January 27th, which this year also marked the 69th anniversary of the liberation of this most brutal extermination camp of the 20th uh, century. It was, for me and for those who were with me, it was a large delegation from Israel. We had over 60 parliamentarians from Israel, a large delegation of Polish uh, parliamentarians. And it was for all of us, and I think in particular the Israeli component, uh, a rather moving, I would say, memorable but very, very painful visit. Bearing witness really to horrors too terrible to be believed, but not too terrible to have happened. And I recall, this is my second visit to uh, Auschwitz. The first time I was there was in 19. 62. I was then a, a law student, and Canada used to have these summer fellowship programs to different countries every year. That summer it was Poland, and we were there for three months. One day was at Auschwitz, and the thing that I remember always from that trip is you would never know from the tour guide, the person who took us around, that any Jews were killed uh, in Auschwitz. You heard about Poles and Russians, no, no reference to Jews. This time when I went into the first barracks, it stated clearly that from 1942 to 1944, 1 1.3 million people were murdered here in Auschwitz. 1.1 million of them were Jews, reminding us of Elie Wiesel's dictum, as he put it, that the Holocaust was a war against the Jews in which not all victims were Jews, but all Jews were targeted victims. At the end of the day, after we had been in Auschwitz and Birkenau, all the parliamentarians gathered uh, for a discussion in Krakow. And one of the things that came up in that discussion was that we should reaffirm a declaration called the Never Again Declaration that was drawn up during the time 
of Ahmadinejad's presidency because of the state-sanctioned incitement to hate and, and genocide in Iran at the time. I mentioned to them that it would be hard to reaffirm it because it related only to Ahmadinejad, and Ahmadinejad was no longer president. And so someone said to me, why don't you draw up a never-again manifesto for parliamentarians, not limiting it to Iran, but the lessons from being here today. And so I've done that, and I'm going to unveil it for the first time this evening. Um, I only unveiled it first with my caucus uh, this week in Parliament, actually yesterday. Uh, and I'm only going to excerpt from those parts of it which have a particular reference to our subject matter this evening. And I'll do that as we move to a close in the last part of my uh, remarks. As it happens, we're meeting also on the eve of the uh, resumption, uh, yet another round of talks between the P5 plus one, the six world powers, and Iran, with regard to their joint uh, agreement, joint plan of action uh, purportedly in order uh, to counter uh, the Iranian nuclear threat. But if one looks just at the statements of this week alone, I'm talking about in the last uh, three days, as they are about to resume talks, it is clear that the P5 plus one, let us say represented by the United States, and Iran have an entirely different understanding of the same agreement that they both signed on to. And so, uh, Secretary of State Kerry stated that there is no question that the agreement prohibits any right to enrichment for Iran. In fact, he says this is prohibited under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the like. Yet, at the beginning of this week, Iranian leaders said, and repeated it again, that they have an inalienable right to enrichment and invoke the Supreme Leader Khamenei that they will never surrender this right uh, to enrichment and that that's a red line, as they put it. Actually, barring, interestingly enough, the metaphor of Netanyahu now being used by the Iranian leadership. And so it went. The U.S. said that Iran would have to dismantle its centrifuges that drive the enrichment. And Iran said not only would they not do that, but they in fact had a new set of centrifuges that were 15 times more powerful. The United States said that the agreement called for the dismantling of the nuclear infrastructure. And Iran, of course, said the agreement doesn't call for anything. I can go on. I've been able to identify 10 major points of disagreement with respect to an agreement they allegedly both uh, have come to. And so, when one looks at the situation now with regard to uh, Iran and the uh, nuclear situation to begin with, and then I'll move to the more particular subject matter uh, this evening, I would reiterate what has been my basic thesis for some time in these matters, which has not changed because Rouhani 
is now president instead of Ahmadinejad. The rhetoric has changed. The incendiary and inflammatory uh, presentations are not uh, as they were. And we have what the economist first called in the summer an unprecedented and remarkable charm offensive by Rouhani, which was on display, of course, uh, in the UN General Assembly in November, a display of last month in Davos, where he was referred to as a rock star uh, in Davos, and so on. But I'll st still make the point. The supreme leader remains the supreme leader. Rouhani, like Ahmadinejad, were there at the behest of the supreme leader, and would not have been there without the approbation of the Supreme Leader Khamenei. And so my basic thesis is that Khamenei's Iran, and I use that term to distinguish it from the people and publics of Iran, who are otherwise the targets of massive domestic repression, that Khamenei's Iran constitutes and has constituted for some time now a clear and present danger to international peace and security, to regional and Middle East stability. One only has to think about the Iranian criminal complicity in what is happening in Syria and in the surrounding uh, area. To Israel and the Jewish people, and increasingly and alarmingly so, to its own people. What we are witnessing in Khamenei's Iran is the toxic convergence of four distinct yet interrelated threats. The nuclear threat, the terrorist threat, the incitement threat, and the domestic repression threat. Let there be no mistake about it. Iran has been and continues to be in standing violation of international legal prohibitions respecting a nuclear weaponization program, beginning with the prohibition on the matter of enrichment, which Iran repulses and said, as I mentioned, they have an inalienable right to enrich. Iran has been characterized by the U.S. State Department as well as others as the leading global sponsor of international terrorism. That has become an understatement. It's not just a sponsor of international terrorism. It's actually a participant in that international terrorism, which has undertaken now a global involvement of which Syria is only one manifestation of it. Iranian terrorist attacks from 2011 to 2013 spawned five continents. And while the attacks may not have been directly carried out by Iran, the Iranian fingerprints were all over these terrorist attacks. The third on the matter of incitement, and I can best cite a unanimous finding and conclusion of law by the Canadian Parliament, and I have to say our Parliament is becoming increasingly adversarial, not unlike the American Congress. So to get a unanimous finding on anything is a rare occurrence these days. But the Canadian Parliament determined back in 2010 
that Iran has already committed, I repeat, already committed the crime of incitement to genocide prohibited under the Genocide Convention. And as to the fourth threat in the matter of domestic repression, that Iran is engaged in what I would call systematic and widespread violations of human rights that in many instances constitute crimes against humanity, against its own people. And so let me move now to the particular uh, topic, I was just contextualizing it, because one can't discuss the particular topic of some inconvenient truths about human rights and anti-Semitism without realizing the globality of the threat uh, with respect uh, to Khamenei's uh, Iran. And while the attention, yet again, when the talks resume, will focus on Iran's nuclear program, understandably so, and I would say necessarily so, one must guard against that kind of preoccupation with the nuclear program at the expense of the other threats and operating in such a way so as to marginalize, if not sanitize, the other threats, particularly the massive uh, human rights violations. I'm reminded here, and I think uh, here in the audience, as Americans you will remember this uh, far better than me, that when the United States negotiated an arms control agreement with the former Soviet Union at the time, it did not turn a blind eye to the violations of human rights in the former Soviet Union. It did not ignore the plight of political prisoners there. It did not ignore the situation with regard to Soviet Jewry. On the contrary, we had the Helsinki Final Act, which is three interrelated <coughs> baskets. The security basket, the economic basket, and the human rights basket. With the human rights basket emerging as a transformative dynamic with respect to uh, the situation in the Soviet Union as a whole. The Jackson-Vanek Amendment, yet another uh, example of the importance that was placed on the issues of human rights in the Soviet Union as being inextricably bound up with the nuclear situation and arms threat from the Soviet Union, such that at the end of the day, it was the focus on human rights, if I may borrow a Marxist metaphor, that led to the withering away of the former uh, Soviet Union. So what follows now is an inventory of these widespread and systematic uh, human rights in Iran today. And interestingly enough, I'm going to not deal with the violations as they were, though they were all there during Ahmadinejad's time. I'm going to deal with them as they are now in Rouhani's time. And you will see not only that they have not abated, but that in some instances they have in fact even intensified. Leading back to what I originally said, that if you want to understand the, the Iranian leadership and its theocratic character, then you have to begin uh, with the supreme leader, Khamenei, and from that everything else follows. Let me begin with the question of executions. Prior to Rouhani's ascent to power. Iran had the highest per capita rate of executions of any country in the world. 
since Rouhani came to power. That rate of executions, already the highest, has even intensified. When Rouhani was at the United Nations General Assembly in November, then described widely as the Rouhani charm offensive at the time, 30 Iranians were executed in that week alone. You didn't read a thing about it. In the month of January 2014, 83 Iranians were executed. I suspect that very little has been read by you about that as well. And so you have a situation that the charm offensive has become the kind of framing of the way we should be looking at uh, Iran, and people are not looking behind the charm offensive to see what in fact is happening. And so on the first issue and on the first question, will Rouhani, I'm going to give you test questions, which you can use as test indicators with regard to each of these sets of human rights. Will Rouhani declare an immediate moratorium on executions and commute our current death sentences? Because as we speak, I can go through the list of those that uh, are on death row, be they Kurds and the like. This is what we have now going on in Iran. Second, torture. The UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights uh, in, in Iran, who has already sent a draft report of his latest report uh, to the leadership in Iran, which is already uh, rejected and uh, outright. Uh, but I met uh, not too long ago with Dr. Ahmed Shahid, who has documented the horrific treatment in previous reports that political prisoners uh, endure. Dr. Shahid found that physical torture, including beating, whipping, and assault, occurs in 100% of the cases. 100% of the cases. Sexual torture, including rape, molestation, and violence to genitals, occurs in 60% of the cases. And psychological and environmental torture, including uh, solitary confinement, are also, as he put it, highly prevalent. And so the question again, will Rouhani put an end to the widespread use of torture by Iranian officials under his and Khamenei's watch, which constitute, effect crimes against humanity against their own people. Number three, political prisoners. We read in the run-up to uh, Rouhani appearing at the UN General Assembly in November, some 12 political prisoners were released. One of them, uh, Nasreen Sutada, was an, an iconic uh, woman lawyer uh, in Iran who had really been one of the most courageous lawyers one can find anywhere. She was the one who was representing other political prisoners, representing other uh, arrested lawyers, representing <coughs> others who were falsely accused until she herself became a, a political uh, prisoner. She was one of those released. And so what you found was headlines about the release of the iconic political prisoner, Nasreen Sutida, uh, whom I represented under our Global Iranian Political Prisoner Program, which I uh, chair with uh, Senator uh, Kirk here in the United States, a U.S.-Canada Global Iranian Political Prisoner Program, where congressmen and Canadian parliamentarians are invited to take up the case of a particular political prisoner and mobilize uh, kind of global advocacy on their behalf. We borrowed this from the Soviet jury movement and the advocacy that took place then. Nasreen Sutida was one whom I was representing. 
and she was released. What is not known is two weeks after she was released, her home was vandalized. What is not known was that her husband has been uh, rearrested. What is not known is that she still is subject to threats and the like. But what is most important is that there are still hundreds and hundreds of political prisoners cutting across the whole range of Iranian uh, civil society. I'm referring to uh, leaders of ethnic and religious minorities, trade union uh, leaders, academics, students, uh, artists, uh, religious leaders and the like. The entire leadership of Iranian civil society, the major uh, leadership, are still political uh, prisoners. And if one looks at the words of uh, Iranian Nobel Peace Laureate Sharan Abadi, as she put it, nearly all of the opposition activists in prison before Rouhani was elected are still in prison. And one of the disturbing factors about this, which you, uh, as well you don't uh, read about, is that when we call on Rouhani to put an end to this criminalization of innocence and those that prosecute and persecute the innocent who should be held to account. What is not known, and it's, it's a, I think, a revealing expression of Rouhani's leadership, is that Rouhani's appointee as justice minister is Mustafa Pur Muhammadi. Mustafa Pur Muhammadi is not a household name for you, but it is to the Iranians themselves, the families of political prisoners, the families of those who have been murdered. And I was in uh, Paris in October when a memorial meeting was held for, uh, by the families of those murdered, including the fact that Bou uh, Mahamadi is responsible for the murder of 5,000 Iranian dissidents in 1988 during the reign of terror at the time, which resulted in the Canadian parliament becoming the first and as yet the only uh, parliament in the world to have declared September 1st Iranian Political Prisoner Day to pay, to express uh, our horror, really, at this mass uh, murder and to call Muhammadi uh, to be brought to account. And so the question uh, then becomes, what will Rouhani do about the political prisoners? Will he release them as he undertook uh, to do, and will he stop uh, detaining uh, new ones? Brings me to the fourth, and I'll start to move more quickly, the fourth major uh, violation, and that is the prosecution and persecution of the Baha'i. As we meet, all the Baha'i leadership is in prison. The Baha'i constitutes the largest religious minority in Iran, some uh, 300,000. But the leadership in Iran prior to Rouhani, but continuing with Rouhani, and at the behest of Khamenei, effectively wages war against uh, the, the Baha'i. They're routinely imprisoned for practicing their faith. I mentioned about the leadership being imprisoned. The seven major Iranian leaders were all sentenced, as now they're in their 60 years, to 20 years in prison, which at their advanced age amounts to a virtual death sentence. And despite Rouhani's sort of rhetorical overtures for greater tolerance for religious uh, minority, 
the Iranian Supreme Leader Khamenei issued a fatwa some four months ago calling on Iranians to avoid any interactions with members of the Baha'i faith, whom he described as, quote, a deviant and misleading sect, as a result of which the Baha'is are systematically targeted, assaulted, etc. I could spend the whole evening just on the plight of the Baha'i alone. It leads me to the fifth uh, indicator, and that's the persecution of other religious and ethnic minorities. In a word, the Iranian state also incites hatred and violence against other minorities, violating their political, social, religious, cultural, linguistic, and educational rights. Amongst these abuses, minority schools and houses of worship have been closed or destroyed, and members of minority groups, not talking now about the Baha'i, such as the Kurds, the Awazi, Arabs, Christians, and Balochians, are imprisoned on such spurious charges as, quote, spreading corruption on earth, and right now there are some 40 Kurdish prisoners alone who have been sentenced to death for a, quote-unquote, national security crime such as Muharrabah, enmity against God. The Iranian-American pastor, Saeed Abedini, whom Obama finally, belatedly, brought up uh, uh, recently, and who was sentenced on trumped-up charges to eight years in jail, has been transferred to an even more dangerous prison where he faces life-threatening conditions. And so, will Rouhani end the oppression of the Baha'i? Will he end the oppression of other minorities? Let me continue and move more quickly. Persecution of women. What you have here is widespread and systematic discrimination, a persistent and pervasive assault on women in Iran. You have persecution of lesbian and gay people. Iranian law not only criminalizes same-sex relations, but allows the courts wide discretion in sentencing them, including not only corporal punishment, but in fact capital punishment, a death sentence. The persecution of journalists and the assault on free speech. As I mentioned, that Iran has the highest per capita rate of executions of any country in the world, it has one of the highest rates of imprisonment of journalists of any country in the world, a fundamental assault on fundamental freedoms of expression, assembly, association, and, and the like. Let me just close by making reference to just several others very quickly. A fundamental violation is an ongoing assault on the rule of law and on the independence of the judiciary. Simply put, there is no uh, independent judiciary in Iran, and the entire legal system is designed to enable and enforce the regime's massive repression of human rights. And so, lawyers representing political prisoners have their licenses revoked or become political prisoners themselves. Nine major governmental ministries responsible for the rule of law and the administration of justice have become sanctuaries for the human rights violators themselves. And I can go on, poor Mohammadi, the Minister of Justice, is one example. We had the denial of political rights in the manner in which Rouhani was uh, elected in an election that was clearly neither free nor fair. And there is, as Dr. Shahid put it, a reigning culture of impunity uh, in Iran. 
not only is poor Mahamadi a case study, but you can look to the defense minister, also appointed by Rouhani, Hossein Dagan, who has ties to Hezbollah and has been implicated in the 1983 bombing of the U.S. barracks uh, in uh, Beirut. And again, one can go on in terms of the culture of impunity, give a whole lecture on that. Let me now move, and with this I'll move to a close, to the whole issue of uh, incitement to hate and to genocide in Iran. What one has to appreciate, and, and perhaps it's not always understood, and one has to contextualize it so that one appreciates it, the culture of hate and incitement to genocide in Iran is state-sanctioned and state-orchestrated. It emanates from the supreme leader. When you had Ahmadinejad with his incendiary and inflammatory rhetoric, one didn't always appreciate that he would end up quoting the supreme leader Khamenei with respect to the incendiary incitement to hate and genocide that he was uh, engaged in. A second thing is, it takes place in a non-democracy. It takes place in a theocratic dictatorship. So the American notion of more speech to combat the hate speech simply doesn't exist and doesn't apply. And it is not only hate speech, it's state-sanctioned incitement to hate and genocide. Let me just give you some examples to this uh, state-sanctioned incitement to hate and genocide. Because what we have had uh, is a critical mass of that uh, culture of hate that cuts across all parts of the Iranian uh, leadership. And so the incitement to genocide, the crime whose name we should even shudder to mention, is, I would say to you, without parallel or precedent, even when compared to the incitement that took place, let us say, in Rwanda, or even that uh, took place uh, with regard uh, to the Nazis. And that is why the, Iranian, the Canadian All-Parliamentary Committee stated that Iran had already committed the crime of incitement to genocide, prohibited under the Genocide Convention. It goes through four stages. That's how it has been, and that is now how it is. The first stage is what is called the stage of the delegitimization, delegitimizing the state of Israel, but also delegitimizing the Jewish people, capped by the statement by Khamenei at the beginning of the 21st century, on January 2000, I think January 4th, 2000, when he said, there's only one solution to the Middle East problem, namely the annihilation and destruction of the Jewish state. Interestingly enough, he did use the words Jewish state. Normally it's a Zionist entity. But I guess uh, for emphasis, uh, in this instance, the words used were Jewish state. Relating to what I said, the delegitimization, and that is an understatement uh, of both the state and uh, the people. And then uh, one of many statements of Khamenei that I can quote, referring to this delegitimization underpinned by anti-Semitic tropes. Listen to the following. What are you? 
a forged government, and a false nation. They gathered, the Jews, wicked people from all over the world and made something called the Israeli nation. Is that a nation? All the malevolent and evil Jews have gathered there. Those Jews who went to Israel were malevolent, evil, greedy thieves and murderers. This is not Ahmadinejad speaking. This is the Supreme Leader Khamenei. Second, precursor to genocide. From delegitimization to dehumanization. Here, what you have is the dehumanization of Israelis and Jews through the use of epidemiological metaphors reminiscent of the dehumanization of the Tutsis during the genocide in Rwanda and even that which took place with regard uh, to the Nazis. So just as the Jews were labeled as vermin by the Nazis or the Tutsis were labeled as uh, cockroaches uh, by the Hutus, so too have Israelis and Jews been dehumanized and labeled in Iran and for each of the things that I'm saying, I have the footnote of authority and wrote an article about it. But listen to some of these epidemiological metaphors. A filthy germ, a savage beast, a cancerous tumor, a stain of disgrace on the garment of the world of Islam, a stinking corpse, a cancerous bacterium stuck in a cesspool created by itself and its supporters, like cattle but more misguided, a rotten dry tree, an unclean regime. I can go on. You get the picture here of this notion of dehumanization. And then comes the third. We move from delegitimization to dehumanization to demonization. And here dehumanization coupled with demonization accomplishes the dual purpose of making the would-be victim, the Jew, appear not only to be less than human, if not subhuman, but also to appear more threatening thereby providing, in the classic sense, the warrant for genocide. So you get rid of this subhuman, who at the same time is threatening, and you have a combination here, the dehumanization, read the subhuman, and the demonization, read the satanic uh, qualities, and the warrant uh, for genocide in that uh, regard. There are other quotes which I'm just going to uh, not excerpt from, but I'll just end up this point by showing how the Supreme Leader combined these two images of Jews conspiring against the world and of Jews waging covert war on a people and elaborating to the audience what he saw as the Jewish satanic design. His words, not mine. And I quote, The occupation of Palestine by the Jews is part of a satanic design by the world-dominating powers to weaken the solidarity of the Islamic world and to sow the seeds of disunity amongst us. And so it was that this took us into what I just told you was all before 2012. The critical mass, unparalleled in its intensity and in its volume, occurred in the year 2012. I'll just excerpt from some of them. The genocidal incitement included in August 2012 alone. President Ahmadinejad's call to quote remove the Zionist black stain from the human society, adding that the very existence of Israel is an insult to humankind and an affront to all world nations, and requiring the wiping out of this scarlet letter from the forehead of humanity. You know, if you go through, as we did in Auschwitz, the barracks, you will find a remarkable symmetry with respect to screenings there, 
of statements made by uh, Hitler and, and Goebbels and others referring also, you know, to the Jew in a satanic way and saying that mankind being the enemy of humanity and that mankind could only be redeemed with the death of the Jew. Incredible parallelism. I mentioned this because all the statements in the barracks came from first Mein Kampf in 1924, but from the 30s, 35, the, the world then could have awakened, did not uh, awaken. In August, Ahmadinejad as well, and in a speech to ambassadors of Islamic countries, with the support of Khamenei, declared that anyone who loves freedom and justice must strive for the annihilation of the Zionist regime in order to pave the way for world justice and freedom. Similar incendiary statements proceeded, though they were attributed to Ahmadinejad, but they came from the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei, yet again, speaking of Israel as a cancerous tumor that must be annihilated, August 2012. Moreover, these cruel and incendiary statements emanating from both Ahmadinejad and Khamenei, and from Ahmadinejad with the authority of Khamenei, have been commingled and conflated with ugly anti-Semitic hate, including classical anti-Semitic tropes blaming the Jews for the poisoning of the wells these past 400 years, adding that the Zionists have been inflicting very heavy damage and suffering on the whole of humanity for over 2,000 years, especially over the last four centuries. Indeed, this state-sanctioned culture of hate and incitement to genocide has been persistent, pervasive, and dangerously pernicious. The 21st century, as I said, began with Khamenei calling for the annihilation of the Jewish state. It was followed during this decade by the parading in the streets of Tehran of a Shia 3 missile draped in the emblem Wipe Israel off the map. It is continued with the use of these epidemiological metaphors referring to Jews that I mentioned as filthy bacteria and the like. Just this past week, the speaker of the, Israel, of the Iranian parliament referred to Israel as a cancerous tumor. When Ahmadinejad said it, you heard about it. When the speaker of the parliament says it, you don't hear about it. When Khamenei reaffirms it, and when the speaker of the parliament invokes Khamenei in saying it, we're not hearing anything because the charm offensive has overtaken everything. And so uh, the question then becomes, I have here a whole series of statements of what has happened just in 2013 alone from every leadership component in uh, Iranian uh, society, whether it be the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Force, I can go on, leaders of the parliament, all engaged in this kind of incendiary and insightful incitement to hatred and uh, genocide. I recall here a, uh, Jose Maria Aznar, a former Prime Minister of Spain, who wrote uh, a year ago, said that he recalled meeting Khamenei during his time in office in October 2000. And I quote what he says, Israel to him was a kind of historical cancer, an anomaly, a country to be put in flames and condemned to disappear, Aznar said. Khamenei said very clearly that Iran must eliminate Israel and wipe it off the map. And he says how 
he was struck by the intensity and commitment of Khamenei to, in fact, carry out uh, the genocide. More recently, on November 20th, 2013, Khamenei told an assembly of some 50,000 Basij militiamen that Israel was ready to fall. Quote, the Zionist regime is a regime whose pillars are extremely shaky and doomed to collapse. The Israelis, he said, should not be called humans. And most recently, Israel, again, Khamenei, Israel is a sinister, unclean, rabid dog of the region. In Islam, dogs are traditionally seen as impure, adding the modifier rabid leaves only one interpretation about what the fate of this dog people should be. And so the question becomes, with this I close, what then can we do and what must be done? It seems to me that the whole approach to Iran that is focusing, understandable as I said, and necessarily so, on the nuclear issue, is allowing the massive uh, human rights violations, the massive state sanction incitement to hate and genocide, the ugly anti-Semitic tropes, not only to pass without comment, but in fact uh, to sanitize them in the marginalization and ignoring of them. And so here, and for sake of time, just an itemization of what an action plan must be with regard to Iran. One, we must expose, unmask, and hold Iran accountable for the critical mass of violations of human rights and international law, which includes the acceleration of the nuclear weaponization program in continuing standing defiance of international law as we meet. The crime, as I said, of state-sanctioned incitement to genocide in violation of the Genocide Convention. The globalization of terrorist criminality targeting innocents, as I mentioned, across five continents, and the massive domestic repression. I find it astonishing that not one state party to the Genocide Convention, where it is clear that Iran has already committed the crime of incitement to genocide under the Genocide Convention, has yet to undertake any action, even such a modest initiative as referring the matter to the UN Security Council for deliberation and account. Not one state party has undertaken even that modest initiative, let alone uh, other uh, juridical remedies which remain available under the Genocide Convention. Two, one must sound the alarm and shine the spotlight on the systematic and widespread assaults by the Iranian theocratic dictatorship on the human rights of the Iranian people, which, as I said, are constituted a crimes against humanity. We need to enlarge and advance the Iranian Global Political Prisoner Advocacy Project so other countries, besides the United States and Canada, globalize the advocacy movement on behalf of political prisoners as it was done with regard to Soviet Jewry. Four, one needs to combat the Iranian Islamic Republic's not only pervasive criminality, but impunity, along the examples that I gave. As I said, Canada is the only country to have uh, called Iran uh, to account and recognize their criminality with Iranian political prisoner day. Five, to call upon Iran to cease and desist 
from its state-orchestrated policy of wanton executions, to cease and desist from its persistent and pervasive assault on the rights of women, including cruel and inhuman treatment and punishment such as stoning and flogging, which continues to go on as we meet, to support targeted sanctions, not only against those who are involved in the nuclear program, but targeted sanctions against those who are involved in these massive violations of human rights, against those who are involved in these state-sanctioned incitement to hate and genocide, against those who are involved in the dissemination of ugly and sentry anti-Semitic tropes and the like. Which leads me now to close just with returning to that trip to Auschwitz and what uh, we have learned. I'm going to just, from this, take three lessons. More can be taken. I tabled, I said with my caucus, this week 12 major lessons, but three that apply particularly uh, to Iraq. The first is that the enduring lesson of the Holocaust and the genocides that followed in Rwanda, in former Yugoslavia, in Darfur, is that these genocides occurred not simply because of the industry of death, and we were reminded painfully of that industry of death with the gas chambers and the crematorium. I have to tell you that as soon as we exited from the barracks containing the crematorium, led by the Israelis, we broke into a kind of instantaneous Kaddish of mourning for the dead with such pain that I have rarely uh, experienced at that moment. And the understanding, as the Supreme Court of Canada said, and I'm quoting, that the Holocaust did not begin in the gas chambers. It began with words. These, as the court put it, are the catastrophic effects of racism. These, as the court put it, are the chilling facts of history. And so on this first lesson, we said we as parliamentarians must undertake to challenge, to address, to redress these state sanctions, incitement to hate and genocide when they occur, of which Iran is now the primary exponent. A second lesson, which relates directly to Iran, which comes out of our Auschwitz experience. And that is that the Holocaust and the other genocides that followed. And I might add that we are on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide, where from April to June 1994, one million Rwandans were murdered. What makes the Rwandan genocide so unspeakable is not only the horror of the genocide itself that would be bad enough but the fact that this genocide was preventable nobody could say that we did not know we knew but we did not act just as nobody could say that we did not know what was happening in Darfur we knew but we did not act just as nobody could say that we don't know what is happening to the civilians in Syria that in March 2011 began the most peaceful civil protest that now has resulted in more than 140,000 dead. One only has to read the recent report that came out about the assaulting, the maiming, the torturing, the murdering of children, the most vulnerable of the vulnerable, to appreciate the horror of indifference <coughs> and inaction on the part of the international community. And it began with the Holocaust with the international community as a bystander community. 
And so the second dangerous lesson that relates as well to uh, Iran. And the third that I wanted to mention is really the la trahison de Claire, the betrayal of the elites. And that is the Nuremberg crimes were the crimes of the Nuremberg elites. The Holocaust was made possible not only because of the bureaucratization of genocide, as Robert Lifton called it, and which Adolf Eichmann, the desk murderer, personified, but it was made possible because of the trahison de Claire, the criminal complicity of the elites, physicians, church leaders, judges, lawyers, engineers, architects, educators, and that's why our pledge as parliamentarians to speak truth to power and to hold power accountable to truth. I'm only going to close now with a pledge that we took there as parliamentarians which are now drafted for this never again parliamentary manifesto. And it says as follows, that this visit to Auschwitz reaffirmed that we must remember and pledge that never again, not as a matter of idle rhetoric, but as a matter of undertaking to act, that never again will we be indifferent to incitement and hate. Never again will we be silent in the face of evil. Never again will we indulge racism and anti-Semitism. Never again will we ignore the plight of the vulnerable. And never again will we be indifferent in the face of mass atrocity and impunity. But we will speak up and we will act against racism, against hate, against anti-Semitism, against mass atrocity, against injustice, and against the crime of crimes whose name we should even shudder to mention, genocide. And I remind you that incitement to genocide is the crime of genocide itself under the Genocide Convention.